2009, November 30th. Today is Astronomy 141, Lecture 42, The Fermi Paradox. So a few more people than were here last Wednesday. Uh, last Wednesday we talked about the question of interstellar travel and interstellar colonization and the question about how would a spacefaring race, not using any fancy technology, I mean we're talking about stuff we could do ourselves, how long would it take to colonize the galaxy? At the very end we came up with a very surprising result. Even with a very modest starflight capability, a long-lived and technologically capable civilization, even if it took them hundreds of years to go between the average distance of stars, could colonize the entire galaxy exponentially in 10 to 100 million years. That's a very fast time compared to everything else. And it led to a question, so where is everybody? Which we know as the Fermi paradox, named for the person who posed the question, physicist Enrico Fermi in 1950. So the Fermi paradox is, to what to, is the con content of today's lecture. We're picking up on this theme of where are all the extraterrestrial civilizations if it's so easy to colonize. The Fermi paradox is basically an apparent contradiction. If you make an estimate of the speed of colonization of the galaxy and the stunning lack of evidence for the existence of extraterrestrials today, you have to understand why that is. There have been a number of proposed solutions that we are going to describe. One of them is that there is no paradox because we have, in fact, come in contact with them, and that's the so-called UFOs are real hypothesis. Not surprisingly, that will be a very short discussion. The next one we'll look at are the fact that the civilizations may, in fact, be able to uh, colonize the galaxy, but they select not to be noticed by us. And these come by various names. For example, the, the zoo hypothesis, or sometimes referred to with a nod to Star Trek, the prime directive hypothesis. The other possibility is that civilizations are, by their very nature, when they get technologically advanced enough, become basically self-destructive and never reach the point of becoming a galactic colonization. This is the doomsday hypothesis, and there's lots of ways to off yourself, and we'll say a little bit about that. Finally, the possibility is that complex life, in fact, is exceedingly rare and never develops, and we are the only advanced civilization in our entire galaxy. And this goes by the name of the so-called rare earth hypothesis, hypothesis, It's named for a book of the same title by uh, Ward and Brownlee, which became fairly popular. It was published, I think, in 2000, 2001. So today we're going to ask the question, where is everybody? Let me recap from what we saw on Wednesday. We talked about interstellar travel and the technology, even using no science fiction-y technologies, just stuff we think we could build if we had the money, willpower, and solved a handful of identifiable but not necessarily easy technological problems. Even with very, very modest assumptions about starflight capability, way sublight, hundreds of years between stars, the time to colonize the galaxy by a simple scenario where you send out one colony ship, it goes out, establishes a home on a new planet, and then fires two ships off to the next nearest star. They then recapitulate that, so you double In this particular case, you double every 5,000 years. So a colony ship goes out, travels 1% the speed of light, takes 500 years to cross the average of six light years between stars, finds a nice habitable planet, sets up a civilization, spends 5,000 years kind of screwing around, builds two new colony ships, and sends those out in different directions to two other stars. And then each colony, in turn, sends out two ships. Obviously a contrived example, but it's a mathematical calculation you can do. If you do that, then you start out from your home planet in both directions. You very quickly build a massive web of colonies. Again, the assumption is very simple-minded. 
assume 100% success, no colonies fail, everyone does it at the same pace, the inhabited region would grow exponentially at approximately one-tenth, one-one-hundredth, one-thousandth, excuse me, one-tenth of a percent the speed of light. If you take the size of the galaxy and the number of stars in the galaxy, you could fill the entire galaxy with uh, colonies of that race in 100 million years. So it's a very rapid exponential process. This is not made up. This is exactly what radiation of populations into new niches is like. Replace interstellar colonization with, say, colonies of insects going from point A to point B and spreading around the world. Uh, zebra mussels, for example, radiating into a new ecological niche. Uh, the spread of flu virus throughout the world using the not interstellar spaceships, but aircraft, basically passenger aircraft and people. Right? H1N1 virus probably arose in some individual location when it jumped species into people, maybe from pigs. It spread around the entire planet within a month or so. It's a virus. <laughs> okay, so bio, basically population radiation like that is an exponential process. It's very different than what we've seen before. This gives us a kind of an exponential population dynamic. This really stands in stark contrast to this idea of the Drake equation that we talked about early last week. Basically, you can very quickly fill up the galaxy even with an extremely pessimistic Drake equation, one that's relatively small number of intelligent species couldn't turn out to be a dramatic underestimate if those species really do do this colonization trick. It's very simple to run through the mathematics of this, and so the big question comes, if it's so easy, right? And how do we quantify easy? It takes 10 to 100 million years for very modest assumptions. The galaxy is 10 billion years old. You could colonize the galaxy many hundreds of times over. Basically, the colonization time is smaller than the age of the galaxy. So it could have happened not only once, it could have happened many times with the civilizations coming and going. So if that's the case, why don't we have evidence of that? The question is posed in terms of something called the Fermi paradox. It's named for Enrico Fermi, who was one of the real great physicists of the, of the early part of the 20th, 20th century. He was an Italian physicist who's best known for making fundamental contributions to a wide variety of questions, nuclear physics, particle physics, statistical mechanics, uh, this basically the early days of quantum theory, which is our theory of the subatomic world. It was Fermi who won the Nobel Prize in 1938 for, again, fundamental work in physics. He built the first nuclear reactor in Chicago in 1942. He led the team that led to humanity's first artificial sustained nuclear reaction that was not an explosion. It was the pile underneath the, the stadium at, at the University of Chicago. He later went on. He, he fled from Italy when, with the rise of Mussolini and the rise of fascism, came to the United States. He worked on the atomic bomb project as part of the Manhattan Project and spent the years, very short years, unfortunately he died very young at the age of, of 53 of stomach cancer, uh, spent the rest of his years at uh, Los Alamos National Laboratory in Chicago. Uh, my, my thesis advisor, the, the late Don Osterbrock, was lucky enough to be a student of, at Chicago, as a graduate student, or an undergraduate at Chicago, um, in the period just after the Second World War, and, and was able to take classes from Enrico Fermi. Fermi was renowned as, a, as an absolutely gifted teacher, um, just phenomenally clear at, at explaining things. He had a way of being able to do problems in his head. He had a method sometimes referred to as the Fermi method, uh, a working out of order of magnitude problems that a lot of physicists like myself and others have learned when we were, were coming up through, the, through, the, through our educations. 
which is an exceedingly powerful way of working through problems. Fermi once commented that with reasonable assumptions, you should be able to estimate just on the back of an envelope or in your head to within a factor of 2 to 10 any physical phenomenon, provided you actually understood, if you understood the question actually so it was soluble. Obviously, getting it down to 10% and a few percent, well, that's, that's why they pay you the big bucks. But basically, if you understand the basic physical intuition behind something, you should be able to think through this. And Fermi was just simply awesome at that. And he was also, by all reports from everyone, I, I, my older teachers who, who had uh, come encounter with him, he was also just an extremely nice guy, unlike a lot of the real gods of physics who were kind of real bastards. Um, the idea of the Fermi paradox, there's many stories that have to do with this, but the definitive story is when Fermi was at uh, Los Alamos, a group of four physicists, one of whom was Edward Teller, um, Harold York, and a person whose name I cannot remember right now, were on their way to lunch, and they were talking about, fairly after World War II is when people started popularizing the idea of UFO sightings, unidentified flying objects. It's hard to say what was going on psychologically during the war. Of course, there were spotters watching for airplanes because World War II was the first really aerial war that was fought in the world. So people were kind of aware of watching the sky. And, of course, there's just a lot of stuff that goes on that never gets explained. And the Air Force, of course, followed down these unidentified flying objects. You know, were they Russian spy planes or you know, Japanese bombers or whatever, depending on the time. So people were sensitive to this. And, and the idea of UFOs and flying saucers and little green men really began to enter the public consciousness, right? Look at all the sort of black and white science fiction movies from the 1950s. There's, there's two basic themes. Alien invaders from outer space, which is, again, a very old theme. It's anxiety about being invaded by others. And we just got out of a war that killed nearly 100 million people, and so people were kind of on edge about that, and atomic monsters, because we were in the atomic age. And apparently, the story goes that there was a cartoon that appeared in the New Yorker by Alan Dunn. And I actually found, I managed to run it down on the web. God, I love Google. Um, the cartoon shows a flying saucer with a bunch of aliens disembarking, and they're carrying, uh, those are wire trash cans with the DSNY, Department of Sanitation New York. Apparently, the joke is the reason why the trash cans in New York were disappearing because aliens were stealing them. That was the joke. Okay. Yeah, I don't get it either. Um, <clears throat> But it was discussion like this on, on the way to lunch was about what if there were UFOs, whether it was colonization. And Fermi worked the problem in his head at lunch and said, okay, so if colonization basically would occur exponentially, where is everybody? Why, why hasn't the galaxy full of these things? Why have we not been visited by advanced extraterrestrials? Or why haven't we found any artifacts of the visits of those extraterrestrials? After all, even minor encounters on the Earth throughout Earth's history between different peoples, and we're not extraterrestrials, we're all from the same planet and the same species, leave their marks on the society, leave artifacts behind, leave you know, marks in the language, words in the languages are left behind by peoples who've encountered, who themselves may have long since been left behind. But really, if you ask the question, have we really found any artifacts or actually been visited if the galaxy is fully populated? And the answer apparently seemed to be no. So Fermi's question was, variously stated so, where is everybody? Therein lies the paradox. If you compute the rate of colonization, even with modest assumptions, the galaxy should be loaded with life. But it's not, apparently. Or certainly we haven't seen anything yet, despite some efforts to find it. So where is everybody? Now there's one fallacy we've got to get out of the way, first of all. The Fermi paradox is a statement about the rapidity of colonization, the fact that it is an exponential process. It does not say anything about the frequency of emergence of civilizations elsewhere in the galaxy. 
Okay? You only need one to do the job, and it only needs to be around for 10 or 100 million years to colonize an entire galaxy. Since the galaxy is about 10 billion years old, you could do this 100 to 1,000 times over, depending upon whether you have an aggressively colonizing or even a mildly colonizing civilization. But to leave behind artifacts to have a visitor at some point in human history, it only has to happen a couple times, not 10 or 100 times or 1,000 times in the galaxy's history. So you really are left with a paradox. It actually is really easy exponentially to completely populate the galaxy. And the galaxy, cosmic time is very old. The galaxy is really ancient. And so there's a lot of time for these slow, improbable things to start. It's worth keeping in mind that one of the real lessons of the cosmological revolution, of the biological revolution, of the geological revolution on Earth, and going back all the way to the second, third week of class, was the discovery of deep time. The fact that the universe is old, the Earth is very old. So take things that on the face of them are utterly improbable between now and lunch, are not only completely probable between now and the previous geological eon, but it can in fact have occurred many times over. Time is really on your side on this particular problem. So let's do a couple of illustrations. Let's fall back again on the Drake equation. Now again, the Drake equation is not a precise physical equation. It is simply a framing device. It is a way of stating our ignorance of a particular problem and quantifying the various pieces we should know. And the way we put the Drake equation together last week is that the number of communicating civilizations is equal to the product of the number of stars times the fraction of stars with planets times the fraction of those planetary systems with Earth-like planets in their habitable zone <coughs> times the fraction of those planets that develop life times the fraction of those planets that develop life that develop intelligent life and the fraction of those planets that develop intelligent life that have communicating life multiplied by a factor which is the age of that civilization divided by the age of the galaxy. Now, we ran some numbers through, and we came up with one last week, but let's put some pessimistic numbers in. We have 100 billion stars that are relevant in the galaxy. 20% of them have planetary systems. Every one of those has an Earth-like planet. But only life only emerges one out of 100,000. And when life emerges, only another one out of 100,000 is intelligent. But when it's intelligent, it's capable of communicating, and it lives for 5 billion years. It lives the age of the Earth. So I'm being generous on the age, but super pessimistic about the probability of life not only emerging, but also becoming intelligent. That's one part in 10 to the 10 that would only do that. So I do that, but we have 100 billion stars, and I end up with one intelligent civilization in 5 billion years. But the galaxy is 10 billion years old, so even this hyper-pessimistic view here gives you two civilizations. Very simple set of assumptions, but it basically gives you two. All you need is one to do the job. Now, if intelligence is instead, so that was the assumption, that was the pessimistic idea that intelligence and life are exceedingly rare, part in 100,000 each, which then you multiply becomes a part in um, 10 to the 10, which is a part in 10 billion. But civilizations, once they get started, live a very long time. So even under those pretty very extreme scenario, civilizations are infrequent but long-lived. You have enough to basically colonize at least twice. Let's go to the opposite extreme, that life and intelligence are very common. It's sort of a principle of mediocrity, it's somewhat called. This isn't special about the Earth. We're just kind of average. So life and intelligence arise very rapidly. These terms, fraction of intelligence, fraction of communicating, <coughs> fraction of life, and fraction to become intelligent, basically become 
uh, one, you always develop life, and one-tenth of the time you become intelligent. Just pick a number. Allow the civilization to only last 100 years, though. They're short-lived. They become very intelligent, capable of producing radio radiation. When they can produce powerful radio transmitters, they also do something and die. They make atomic bombs and have a nuclear war. That gives you, at any instant, 50 such civilizations throughout the galaxy. We did the calculation last time. The mean distance between these is about 7,000 light years. Very sparse, very empty. But 10 billion years divided by 100 years gives you almost 5 billion civilizations added up across the entire history of the galaxy. Now, both of these calculations are extreme. Both of these have un basically unsupportable and absolutely indefensible bogosity about them. But just by framing that shows you that you're allowed a fairly big range. It only has to happen a couple times. So whether civilizations are very frequent or very infrequent, that's not what sets the Fermi paradox. What sets the Fermi paradox is the exponential rate of growth of colonization once you get the ball rolling, even with modest modest uh, assumptions. So now we're going to take the Fermi paradox at face value. Colonization is easy. It happens very rapidly compared to the age of the galaxy, not compared to a human lifetime, compared to the age of a galaxy. So the galaxy could have, for modest assumptions, have been colonized many times over. But we look around ourselves. We don't hear any signals from extraterrestrials. We don't have any of them visiting, apparently. We don't have any artifacts that anyone's found so far. So where the heck are they? If it's so common, why didn't it happen? I'll give you an analogy before we dive into this slide full of words. Think about this way, right? Look at the ability of life to radiate across this planet. Okay? Think about it in terms of, of colonization is development of technology. Once you develop a technology, it makes it easier for you to travel from point A to point B. Okay? For millennia, People in Europe and Asia were pretty much stuck to how, where they could get in the European and Asian continent on foot. Either their feet or the feet of, say, four, four hooves like a, like a horse. Somewhere around the you know, few hundred years ago, European civilization especially developed long-range oceanic travel. They basically learned how to build ships that could cross the vast stretches of the oceans. It was a technological advance. They traveled out to continents they didn't even know exist, North and South America, Australia. What did they find there? All the people that walked there the slow way through the previous millennia. Human beings radiated to every single inhabitable niche on this planet long before humans developed the technological capability to travel freely anywhere they want to on the planet fast. Time is on your side even if you're slow. So that's an important lesson here. Human beings, when we showed up, there was someone there to greet us. Sometimes with rocks, sometimes not. Maybe they should have had rocks sometimes. So there's a number of solutions that have been proposed to the Fermi paradox that touch on all the various ways in which the Fermi paradox could be resolved. Right? You've got a contradiction. How do we resolve the contradiction? The first of these, of a basic theme is, that we, in fact, do not see civilizations because they aren't there. We are, in fact, alone in the galaxy. Okay? And we always have been, is one thing which is often a way of stating the rare earth hypothesis. We're it. We're the, ones that, we're the only ones who have arisen here in the galaxy. That's a very extreme assumption. 
The other possibility is that we're not the only civilization. We really aren't alone. It's just that the other civilizations, if you will, blow themselves up, destroy themselves, self-destruct. This is sometimes referred to as the doomsday hypothesis. That when your technology becomes advanced enough to harness the energies necessary for space flight and star flight, you at the same time will harness them for weaponry. And that will eventually, you will make a mistake. The other possibility is that civilizations arise, but nature is notably very cruel. It basically eradicates civilizations because civilizations are fragile. This is the sometimes referred to as the inhospitable universe hypothesis. Your civilization is just getting rolling, everything's good, you're just about to launch your first starship and an asteroid hits you and obliterates you. All right, reset, game over. Next, and you wait for the next one to show up. So these are basically ways of saying that either they're not there at all or they are there but they don't get very far. They don't make it to that next leap which allows colonization to occur. The second possibility is that civilizations have arisen, they are technologically capable, and they haven't bothered to, to do the colonization. They haven't making that st- taken that step, either because it's too hard or because for some reason they just don't feel like it. They're not technologically inclined to say, yeah, it's pretty good here, we'll stay here, we'll solve our problems here, why go out and make new trouble? The other possibility is that civilizations have in fact colonized the galaxy, that the Fermi paradox is in fact reading it correctly, it's ridiculously easy, it's happened, maybe it's happened a couple times, but we don't know about it yet. Either we haven't found the artifacts because we don't know what to look for, we're too primitive, we wouldn't recognize them because they're so far advanced, we just can't tell what we're looking at as an artifice. Another possibility is they're there and they know we're here but they're not telling us, that's sometimes referred to as the zoo hypothesis, meaning we are creatures in a zoo being watched by these much more advanced civilizations. Maybe being guarded, maybe being studied, who knows? Fattened for eating, who knows? Or, and again, as I said before, because we just can't tell. The civilizations are so far in advance of us, we we simply can't recognize them. Or they, they have technological means to watch us that we would not even recognize as means of surveillance. You know, advanced nanotechnologies that's in the dust. I mean, they're probably recording this conversation now and laughing their asses off. We have no way of knowing it because we have no way of recognizing this. The other part, the other final solution is that, in fact, they do exist. We have firm evidence of their existence, but the government isn't telling us. There they know. Area 51, the aliens. Yep, you better believe Obama got, mm-hmm, yeah, he got, he got briefed on that. Yep, sure, right. So let's go through these in kind of slightly reverse order. The last hypothesis is known as the UFOs are real hypothesis. There really have been extraterrestrial visitations that we really have been visited. Yes, ma'am? If there are aliens, why does it assume that they're more advanced than we are? Ah, that's a good question. Why is it assumed? Because they can travel between the stars and we can't yet. That's, that's basically the answer. It would require a leap of technology to travel between the stars, be able to live long enough to be useful to it. So the assumption, and this is a pretty good assumption, that once you reach that stage, you continue to advance and become a more sophisticated civilization. You can take a dystopian approach, namely you send out a colony, and the colony fights among themselves and degenerate back to the Stone Age, to use the, the usual analogy. That colonization stops. We kind of like to assume that because there has been advances in our own civilization, we project that onto the others. But certainly we would think that as you know, we've gotten vastly more sophisticated. Let me back up a bit. That's a very interesting question. I've played this mental game once on a really cloudy night. Play it for yourself sometimes to give you an idea of how hard it is to explain our world to somebody. Don't try to explain it to aliens. 
Imagine you can go... I, I played this game. My, my great-great-great-grandfather in the 1850s came from northern Germany. Heinrich Hermann Pogge. Pogge got the mispronounced later, and that's what it is. Moved into Iowa Territory, had a wife, had lots of kids, and, you know, I'm sort of a few generations down the street. I once sat on a long night, sort of, you know, bored out of my skull, snowing like mad at the observatory. I thought, how could I explain to him what it is I do and what kind of world I live in? The machines are sitting in front of me, the things I do every day. That was only three, four generations back. How could I make him understand the world of 2000 when he's from the world of 1850? I mean, I know his name. I know the lineage of my relationship to him. We live in the same, same country. We speak more or less the same language. Und ein bisschen Deutsch. I could talk to him in German or English. But could I explain the 21st century to him? Could he understand it? Now make a leap of millennia or millions of years in difference of civilizations. How do you explain that? This is a fundamental problem. So that's, that's sort of along the lines of the we can't tell. You don't have to be that far removed before you realize that you couldn't explain. I couldn't back, we could go back further, go back to ancient Rome, explain 21st century to ancient Rome. Or for your matter, understand ancient Rome yourself. How could you survive in ancient Rome? Yeah, you've got 2,000 years on them. Is any of it any good? It's really tough. Even, but we're humans. We speak the same languages. Maybe we don't. You have to learn a little Latin. Who knows? Anyway, let's get back to the topic. Extraterrestrial visitations? I don't think so. Okay. This would be, really falls under the, the cliche heading that extraordinary claims require extraordinary proofs. And I, will, I know there's a lot of people out there who love UFOs. Some of you may be here. I hope I don't insult you, but I think it's basically all a load of crap. The more polite way of putting it is that extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof, and extraordinary proofs have never been put forward. What, what do we get? Fuzzy photographs, although this one actually is an obvious fake. That's a lamp cover. Um, it's one of the most famous of these things from 1952. They were already people were playing the game. It's, it's a lot of fun. People get their laughs somehow. Crop circles, come on. It's a bunch of guys drinking at the pub who went out and did that, and after a while found that they got a little of attention. They can really tweak people if they put funny patterns out in the crop field. We know how it's done. It doesn't need extraterrestrials putting weird symbols in the crop, crops to do that. There's been lots of anecdotal accounts of, of, of visits by aliens and alien abductions. You're a spacefaring race that can cross between the stars. You've harnessed energies capable, which we saw last time, require tremendous energy technologies to move between the stars. Why do you talk to our stupidest people? Right? It's pretty clear who the governments are, who the military are, who the scientists and scholars and teachers and everyone else are. You're going to talk to some drunk in a pickup truck out in the middle of nowhere? Right. It's not how any rational being would act if you had that kind of knowledge, unless you're just really twisted. And there are stories along that lines. And then there are claims of vast government conspiracies. And, of course, the government's known all about this all along, and they're just not telling us. But I don't know if any of you have ever worked for the government or will eventually work for the government. You can't keep your secret for squat among five people, much less the thousands of people who've worked for the government over the last five decades. And it just doesn't work that way. It's a, it's a fun literary thing. It's fun to think about, but it just doesn't work. Fundamentally, what it comes down to is there are lots of unexplained things up in the sky. I've seen weird things in the sky, too. But just because I can't explain them doesn't say, oh, I can't come up with a rational explanation. I can make up anything. 
The craziest possible thing does not become legitimate just because you can't come up with a reasonable explanation. If there really were visitations, you'd think they probably would know who to talk to by now. You can even think about how we would go about it. No. Okay, fine. That's all I get to say about UFOs for the rest of the course. Thank you. Let's be on to more, more rational ideas, marginally speaking. Um, civilizations, maybe civilizations have colonized the galaxy. Maybe Fermi's right. Maybe the calculations are right. It really is easy to do. But they're not telling us. Okay? Now, there's a lot of ways in which the they're not telling us is framed. And now I get to throw in my gratuitous Star Trek slide. Um, the first of these is called the zoo hypothesis. An extremely advanced civilization might decide that, you know, we got some potential maybe, but we have to be protected because if we were suddenly hit full force with their alien technology, it might completely ruin us. And they don't want to do that. So they're kind of watching us and taking care of us for a while. It's kind of a patronizing way of looking at it, but it's been put forward. The idea is that they're there, but they don't want to mess with us because it might harm us. And they may be right. The other possibility is the sentinel hypothesis, namely that they're watching us, but they're watching us with highly advanced technologies. The term sentinel refers to the monolith in the movie 2001 that was watching mankind and training it over time. A very silly idea when you think about it, but there may be ways of doing that where you're saying, yeah, these guys are pretty smart and they're kind of violent. Let's keep an eye on them so they don't kind of get out of the farm and come out and cause trouble for us. Um, Day of the Earth stood still, for example. It's a common theme in science fiction. The other theme, and actually this gets more at ethical problems, is what's often referred to as the prime directive hypothesis. That, and this, again, derives from a, an idea that came up in Star Trek series. The idea is that in a highly advanced civilization, interfering with a less well-developed civilization could in fact destroy it. You give them access to technologies they're not ready to handle, and they turn it into you know, sticks to beat each other with. They use it to advantage in a bad way. Uh, you bring a civilization along with advanced technologies who's not ready for it, and they turn on you. So it's not only both protection for the species, but protection for yourself. You let them rise or fall on their own just like you did, presumably, but if you help them up, you run into troubles. The other area which we've already touched on is the fact that we're too, too primitive to tell. They're so far advanced from us, we couldn't recognize them if they saw them or handle them if we did. Um, this is often, uh, again, I think one of the ideas here, again, there are ample precedents for this. And these ideas aren't simply made up science fiction-y things. This is actually, there are plenty of ample incidents from human history, we don't need extraterrestrials, of what people have referred to as the fatal impact between peoples in human history. Even when those imp in those contacts are extremely well-intentioned. The term fatal impacts refers to the first encounters between European explorers who really weren't interested in conquering territory they just visited and Polynesian peoples. Whole civilizations, miniature civilizations in Oceania were simply wiped out within a few generations of the first contact with Europeans, either through European diseases or being hit with technologies they couldn't handle. Someone well-intentionally helping someone out gave one tribe an advanced, advanced technology for warfare, the other didn't, give them access to iron, and all of a sudden one group wiped out another, or vice versa. Or you destroy their culture, or you send in missionaries, or something, who knows? There's lots of different ways, there have been lots of impacts. We only can look, for example, at the colonization of the North and South America to see that. There were vibrant civilizations here before the Spaniards and the Europeans arrived. Nearly all of them have been extinguished. And they're humans. So what would happen, and they were only removed from the European civilizations by a few centuries in certain technologies. 
What if the technologies and time removed is even vaster? How fast will we destroy ourselves? Or will we, would it just so wipe us out, it just blow our minds so badly we would stop having the will to explore because someone else already has the answers and it would almost become like a religious cult. There's a, some of you may have heard of Arthur C. Clarke, the science fiction writer. He has something called Clarke's Third Law. Clarke's Third Law basically says that any sufficiently advanced civil, uh, technology is indistinguishable from magic. So therein lies sort of the idea behind keeping quiet you might do irreparable damage to the civilization that you encounter. So it's not a crazy idea. It has a lot to do with encounter ethics. It's things we worry about, especially even today, when we start encountering highly isolated tribes, say like in Amazonia and elsewhere, New Guinea, people get very nervous about, should we make contact, yes or no, and how do we do that to not destroy their, civil, their societies? Unfortunately, in every single case where we've done it, their societies have been permanently altered, maybe for the better, maybe not, in every case. So it's, it's a serious question. The second resolution is to say that the colonization has not occurred. That yes, it's an exponential process, but the process never got started. There's a couple of reasons why the process might get started, not get started. One of them is because it is simply too expensive. It costs too much energy, too much time, too much resources. If we wanted to send a human spaceship, manned spaceship, to the nearest stars, it would take basically the combined resources of our entire planet to do it. Basically, our human resources of our entire planet. It would take the energy output 100 times over of what we can do now. We'd have to have entirely new forms of energy to transport a huge mass of people. Just Alpha Centauri, which is just right next door. So you have to have the will to do it. And if it's too expensive, you may have better things to do with your time, other problems to solve. However, th this has a, a counter-argument, is that... Well, you don't have to necessarily send people. People are expensive. You've got to carry life support. You've got to carry food. You've got to move the people. People are kind of big, big water bags, right? We have a lot of weight for what we carry. There may be cheaper ways to colonize the galaxy very rapidly. You can use robotic probes instead of these very expensive, very large starships. The smaller the mass, the exponentially less energy you need to get them up to speeds, and less fuel you need to get them up to speeds. There's two possibilities for this. Johnny von Neumann, one of the fathers of modern computing, again, a brilliant Hungarian mathematician, uh, thought of the idea of a self-replicating machine that would basically carry a little bit of artificial intelligence to it, would travel to a new star system, find an asteroid belt, build copies of itself, and then dispatch them. They're called von Neumann machines. And they, they show up in various science fiction stories. But it's an interesting statement that you can basically achieve exponential growth with machines and machine intelligence of even relatively modest scale. These would simply be explorers. They would just be robotic probes, and they would go around making copies of themselves. They'd very quickly fill the galaxy. But the argument goes, we've never found a von Neumann machine or something plausibly a von Neumann machine. Or we're just not looking right because they're all out in the asteroid belt. We really haven't explored it. We don't know how big such things would be. The other option, there's a little cartoon here just because it's cool, is called a Bracewell probe or a messenger probe. The idea is that a civilization that wants to communicate and actually communicate directly, the, the speed of light delays are really long. So you send out self-replicating probes called Bracewell probes that go into a system, maybe targeted at systems where you found some sign of life, uh, biosignatures on an Earth-like planet, its habitable zone or something. It travels to that system and then carrying an artificial intelligence on board, it begins transmitting and listening for radio wavelength frequencies and it sort of keeps itself going for however long. And when civilization reaches the radio transmission stage, it triggers 
and the AI starts having a conversation with who's ever there and then beams the information of that conversation back home. So you have immediate short-range contact, but then you do this over large scales. And meanwhile, the Bracewell probe, like the von Neumann machines, makes copies of itself and sends them off to other likely places. Even with a simple technology like a Bracewell messenger probe, you could easily carpet the galaxy with these things in a few million years. The civilization that sent them could have been gone completely. The machines themselves are autonomous. This is the way the thinking goes. So again, using this exponential growth hypothesis, freeing yourself from the limitations of beings with limited lifetimes or even civilizations with limited lifetimes, you can imagine artificial means by which you can colonize the galaxy not with people but with their artifacts. And it's a way of doing so relatively inexpensively because you build them in place when you get there. The other idea is because civilizations have not colonized because they can do it, but they just don't feel like it. They don't want to. This one seems unlikely. Again, we don't have any examples of other intelligences to deal with but ourselves. There's no precedent in human history for a civilization that has just sat on its hands when given the opportunity to go do something else. And I show a picture, for example, of a Maori ocean-going canoe here. Every single habitable location on this planet has been inhabited by human beings. The only places that don't have human beings are just really no place you really want to live unless you have advanced technologies that make it possible for you to live there. Right? We only moved into the Antarctic continent in the last century because we have technologies to make habitations that can survive the winter. But every single habitable island on this planet is inhabited and was inhabited over many thousands of years. Anyone who got the itch in the feet went. So again, we don't know if we're special or not, but if you take the principle of mediocrity, anyone who's got that kind of curiosity is going to naturally want to radiate outwards. And so that's the usual counter-argument to the they don't want to is say, well, who wouldn't? It's not much of an argument, I'll be sure. Be sure. But that's, again, the kind of statement that's made. Okay, let's go down the list a little bit. Maybe the civilizations have not colonized the galaxy because the advanced technologies allow them to self-destruct before they get around to the colonization phase. Again, we'll take a lesson from human populations. With, even without advanced technologies of the scary sort, like you know, nuclear weapons, human populations, once they reach the top of the food chain, have a tendency to basically grow faster than sustainability of the environment for them. It's just simply a given. It doesn't, it's not a modern invention. It's happened throughout history. You basically outlive your resources because we can breed really fast and we're at the top of the food chain. We don't have any predators taking us on, so we can grow very rapidly. Simple population dynamics. We also are, well, we are notably aggressive. Okay, it's, it's, it's not a tendency that's ever been bred out of the human race. We don't seem to be very good at long-range planning, meaning planning multiple generations down the road. We do sort of have vague ideas of the better good many generations up, but let's face it, the immediate problems really are what catches our attention. And, well, quite frankly, sometimes we're irresponsible with our technologies. We do things that think, wow, this is going to be really cool, and it is really cool, and we don't think through the consequences, unintended consequences of lots of things. Even things that are benign, that, you know, they aren't, we aren't setting out to do something wrong, just we do something kind of dumb, like, wow, here's a, a great new form of steel axe. It's really sharp. I can cut down 100 trees a, a week with this thing and take all the trees off a mountainside. Good, you got a lot of lumber. Next big rain season comes and the mountainside slides down and covers your village. That's an example of being irresponsible with technology. You're not thinking the consequences through. There are lots and lots of examples of this throughout all of human history. So why should, that, why should anyone else be any different? 
So this leads to something referred to as the doomsday hypothesis. Okay? It's actually species are very fragile, as we've seen. Both intelligent species and unintelligent species have come and gone. Certainly species have come and gone many times over on this planet. Nuclear war is a way a technologically capable civilization could wipe itself out. I'm not so sure nuclear war is as much in your consciousness as it was in mine growing up in the late 60s and early 70s and 80s when it was a big deal because we still had the, the intercontinental tension between the then Soviet Union and the United States. But I can tell you fear of nuclear war was very, very real in the mid-1980s. It was very palpable. It's not as much today, as I, certainly not I feel. But now we think we worry about nuclear terrorism, for example, might, might revive that. Biological warfare. You know, the reason why most people don't like talking about biological warfare is because it really scares the hell out of them, right? Because you can't control microbes. You really can't. That's why people have been really nervous about that one, right? One mistake and, poof, you know, there it goes. You can wipe out most of the population. Accidental contamination, a really big accident. Think of an accident of Chernobyl scale but covers the planet with something bad. A super bad industrial accident. Could easily do, do bad things. Nanotechnology catastrophe. I tossed this one in. Some of you may have heard of the so-called gray goo hypothesis. Little micro, microscopic machines that can self-replicate suddenly have a little bug in their code and begin to self-replicate in all directions and turn everything into raw materials. It's called the gray goo hypothesis. Do I think it's going to happen? No, but it's an example of an exponential catastrophe or environmental catastrophes. Some people think, for example, global warming falls in this, in this category. This is a global catastrophe. Um, a good example of an environmental catastrophe caused by human intelligence and technology, Easter Island. Easter Islanders basically grew without, near, with, without too much competition once they got to the island. They pretty quickly deforested the place. Once they deforested it, they started basically altering the climate for how they got food. They broke into warring camps. And by the time the Spaniards come up, they were exceedingly degenerate. But they were a civilization vibrant enough to put up all those statues. But they totally and completely collapsed. This kind of environmental catastrophe was highly localized. What if you grow to the point that your technology allows that to happen on a planetary scale? Game over. So those are the doomsday hypothesis. That's kind of grim. The other possibility is it isn't our fault. Nature just whacked us. Basically, nature can be cruel. Nature is very dangerous and may, in fact, limit the life, even if a civilization comes alive that's perfectly peaceable. They're on the technological fast track, and then an asteroid or comet hits them and wipes them out. Or maybe a supernova or a gamma ray burst, a subclass of, of supernova, goes off and floods the planet with gamma rays and x-rays and basically sterilizes its surface. And there's nothing they can do about it. They just basically have to stand back and watch nature squash them like a bug. Okay? This one is not crazy because there is ample precedent for this in the Earth's geological history. We've seen numerous events back in geological time where 98% of marine and land species were simply wiped off the face of the Earth by some disaster. They simply vanished from the historical record. 65 million years ago, an asteroid about that big in this cartoon whacked what is now the Caribbean Basin, formed the Chicxulub Crater, and is implicated in causing a sufficient climatic shift on, on, in the world that basically wiped out all the dinosaurs and didn't wipe out all life. It opened up a niche for mammals to radiate into, and evolution took over, and we're here talking about it. But what if the asteroid was of those sterilizing impact kinds that probably sterilized life as it got started probably a few times over the, during the first billion or so years of the, of the history of the Earth? 
What if a really big asteroid gets dropped down? There, are too, there aren't too many 500-kilometer-sized asteroids left in our galaxy, in our, sorry, our solar system. But suppose something does come in and basically makes the Earth completely inhospitable before we possess the technology to go live somewhere else. So this is a way in which nature can be cruel. It may, in fact, occur fairly frequently. And so even with growth of civilizations, it only takes one disaster to basically stop that development cold. Finally, the rare Earth hypothesis poses that the complex intelligent life like we have on Earth is exceedingly rare, that we are a product of an extremely unlikely combination of geological and astronomical circumstances, and that we're the only people in the universe. I thought for a while about making a separate lecture about this in this class. It's a very nuanced idea, but the more I've thought about it, the more I realized, A, I don't have time this quarter to basically prepare such a lecture, and B, I'm not sure it's actually worth a whole lecture because I think actually it's fundamentally flawed. It's probably not an answer. I, I kind of basically don't want to think it's right, but I could not make a defensible critique of it in the short time available to me. So simply understand the rare earth hypothesis exists. It's the Warden-Brownlee idea. And it may be a reason that there's no one out there is because we're it, which would make us think we want to be a lot more careful with what happens to us. So the Fermi paradox has no solution at this point. In fact, it may be framing a question that may be the right question to ask or the wrong one, but it's an interesting way of looking at what the consequences of thinking about intelligent life. The galaxies is big and time is vast. It could have happened. Maybe we just aren't asking the right questions or looking in the right place, or it never happened at all. We still don't know, but it gives us a question to ask. See you all tomorrow. <laughs>